Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Cherie Harder talks with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. In Douthat's book, The Decadent Society, he provides an enlightening diagnosis of our modern condition, which he says has been characterized by decadence. He'll argue that many of today's discontents and derangements reflect a sense of futility and disappointment, a feeling that the future is not what was promised. So I think the escape from decadence is probably a dynamic thing where technology, politics, religion are all sort of operating together. But it's hard to imagine it happening without a really strong religious element within it. This episode was recorded in 2020 and is being published here for the first time. You can find our full catalog of event videos, including two conversations with Ross Douthat on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm Cherie Harder, the president of the Trinity Forum, and with me today is New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. Ross is the author of several books, including a fascinating new work entitled The Decadent Society, which we've invited him to discuss with us further today. Ross, great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's start off with definitions. So you've asserted that America, and indeed much of the West, is a decadent society, but many of us think of decadence as immorality or indulgence, uh, tyrants holding orgies or extra helpings of chocolate cake. You're obviously using the term differently. What do you mean by calling the U.S. a decadent society? So I'm not ruling out the orgies or the tyrants I, or the chocolate cake. There's plenty of that in American culture, obviously. But I am essentially borrowing or stealing my definition from the great cultural historian Jacques Barzun, who has passed away, so you're allowed to steal from cultural historians once they've passed away. And he wrote a book, a sort of survey of Western history called From Dawn to Decadence that came out about 20 years ago, where he argued that decadence properly understood doesn't just mean sort of immorality or, you know, flapper parties or cabaret shows or Vegas weekends. It, it refers sort of more technically to a stage in a civilization's history when it's attained a certain level of wealth and power and cultural achievement, and then it starts to essentially stall out. It runs out of frontiers to explore. It runs out of innovations to achieve. Its political system becomes sclerotic and is dominated by stalemates. The, the order of the government doesn't work anymore. And its cultural and intellectual arguments go in circles. So they keep cycling back to the same deadlocks, the same arguments generation after generation. And so go sort of lifting up from Barzun, I say decadence refers to economic stagnation, political decay, and cultural repetition and exhaustion at a high stage of wealth, technological development, and so on. So you have to be successful, as my title suggests, to become decadent. And decadence is basically the falling off that comes when you hit a peak and can't figure out where to go next. 
So I'm sure you've often gotten the pushback that innovation or technological advance is not necessarily slowing, that we have Moore's Law, where the just the strength of transistors are increasing, are doubling, while, while technology itself is becoming less and less expensive, and the fact that we seem to be on the cusp of an important and rather scary technological changes in the form of genetic engineering, AI, and even transhumanism, which Mm -hmm. is not an exterior frontier, but an embodied one. What do you say to critics who push back on the idea that our technological advances have stalled? So first, I concede that decadence is not universal, right? So even in a society that's broadly decadent, there are pockets of creativity and pockets of innovation. And obviously, Silicon Valley and the internet revolution represents in certain ways, with some ambiguities we can get into later, an exception to the rule of decadence. It's the one place where there has been some real technological progress in the last generation. You know, nobody disputes that the ability to move information quickly around the world or to enter simulated worlds in various ways is an actual technological breakthrough. However, the history of innovation in America, in the Industrial Revolution, in the Western world going back centuries has tended to be a kind of full spectrum innovation where you have breakthroughs in transportation and energy and, you know, transformations in the built environment all happening together with medical breakthroughs and with breakthroughs in communication. And over the last 40 or 50 years, we've sort of narrowed, and this is the argument that Robert Gordon, an economist from Northwestern, a famous economist, makes, that basically technological progress has become monodimensional. It's all tech and nothing else. And you can see that arguably in the productivity statistics. So productivity is probably the best statistical measure of technology's impact on the economy. So as technology advances, workers and companies are supposed to become more productive. And this happened sort of as a rule up until the 1970s when productivity growth started to stall out. And there was a brief moment in the late 1990s when the dot-com revolution happened and the internet sort of came came online, right? When that changed and there was productivity growth again. But over the last 15 or 20 years, it's stalled out once more. So it's like you've got a one-time internet dividend, but you know all the apps on your phone and everything that Facebook and Google has to offer hasn't added that much more productivity. And internet companies have struggled, I think this is sort of telling, to transform non-internet areas of the economy. So whenever they, you know, you pi- the piled up wealth in Silicon Valley People are not sure where to invest it, and when they do invest it in big projects, they have a way of turning out to be either outright frauds like Theranos or just things like WeWork, right? These attempts to sort of, in that case, to revolutionize the office that have a ton of venture capital behind them and are sort of floated by venture capital but never find a way to profitability. And in the book, I suggest that Uber and Lyft might be similar, that as you know, delightful as ride-sharing technology is, it's not actually a sort of market-based breakthrough. It's Silicon Valley has a lot of money, so they can subsidize this for all of us, which is nice of them, and we appreciate it, but it's different from 
the original invention of the automobile. So that's a longish answer, and but I can say a little I'll say a little more about the genetic engineering argument because with genetics there is a lot of genuine cutting edge research being done, and obviously the breakthroughs happening with CRISPR and related technologies are impressive. At the same time, they are not yet revolutionary, and you know there was an expectation. 20-odd years ago when I was becoming an adult and we mapped the human genome, that this would translate fairly quickly into human cloning, significant genetic engineering, at the very least, curing genetic conditions. And a lot of religious conservatives, myself probably included, immediately leaped forward to, you know, some sort of worst-case scenarios for what that could mean. But in fact, I think we've learned over the last 20 years that the problems involved in those kind of breakthroughs are really hard problems that we, we've made some headway, but we haven't at all figured out how to solve them. And that's true, I think, across a range of areas, like something like the self-driving car, right? You know, we sort of know how to build a self-driving car. We've solved 80% of the problems involved. But that remaining 20%, like how do you make it drive in the rain, right? Kind of a big deal, at least for now, seems to be outside our reach. And so you get promises that by 2015 or 2020, you will have X number of self-driving cars on the road. And then the promise recedes a bit. Or with AI, right? There's a lot of anxiety, artificial intelligence, a lot of anxiety in Silicon Valley that, you know, we're rushing towards a sort of self-aware, you know, Skynet and Terminator type, type mind. But as far as I can tell, the hardest problems involved in AI have not actually been solved and still remain pretty far out of reach too. So both, I think both the positive aspects, the positive kinds of technological breakthroughs and the ones that as Christians we might regard with a more skeptical or critical eye are out there, but they're a little bit beyond our grasp, have been for 20 to 40 years. And, you know, it's possible, I consider the possibility in the book, that there will be a real shift in the next 20 years and we will cease to be technologically decadent. But for now, we do seem to be a little bit, well, struggling a little bit to hit the next breakthrough that actually transforms society. Is there any sense that we have perhaps defined decadence down, by which I mean we've gotten so used to, over a period of a couple of decades, these really remarkable technological breakthroughs, not monodimensionally, as you mentioned, but across various sectors, that that has become the new normal? And there's an expectation that it will simply continue along those lines. And if we are not doing that along multiple dimensions in quantum ways, that that has become the new decadence when, say, a century ago, it would have still constituted remarkable whiz-bang change. Right. Well, this is like the, I mean, I hesitate to invoke his name, but the Louis C.K. riff that he does, right, where, you know, he says, people complain about airline travel, right? But it's a miracle. You're sitting in a plane, you know, and sure, you're crowded, but you're flying through the air. You're hurtling through the air. It's incredible. It's an age of miracles. And so there's some truth to that. At the same time, I, I do think that most of the most miraculous things, air travel very much included, are achievements of the 1840 to 1970 period, right? It's not clear. Air travel has not gotten any faster since the 1970s. In fact, it's gotten slightly slower because people complained about how noisy the Concorde was, so we don't use it anymore. 
And it obviously hasn't, it's gotten a little cheaper and a little less comfortable. That's sort of the trade-off we've decided to make. But there hasn't been a revolution in air transport technology since the 70s. You know, the same goes automobile speeds happily, I guess, are not, you know, for our own safety are not, are not going up. Self-driving cars sort of promise a change where you could go faster because it's all computerized in various ways um, or be more efficient, but that hasn't happened yet. And I think that we, in certain ways, we underestimate how much change people 50 or 60 years ago expected, right? That, you know, we look at the miracle of our iPhones and say, well, this is, this is genuinely miraculous. And so, you know, we must be achieving as much as people did a couple generations ago. And, you know, you go back to mid-century America, there was an expectation, for instance, in the space program, right? Today, we sort of take it for granted. Well, we went to the moon. There wasn't much there. Elon Musk has his rockets. Maybe someday we'll go to Mars, but it's sort of out of reach. We went from Kitty Hawk to the moon in 68-odd years. And so in the 50s and 60s, people were saying, look, of course, we'll, we'll have moon bases, obviously. Not crazy futurists, but like, you know, grounded scientists. We'll have moon bases. We'll have space elevators going up to space stations. And we'll presumably get to Mars by, let's say, 2020 or so. Those were the expectations. And that, too, hasn't happened. Or with energy, right? We sort of take it for granted that after Three Mile Island and especially Chernobyl, that atomic energy, nuclear energy, you know, maybe it's environmentally efficient, but it's too dangerous for sort of anything but the most careful use. Go back to the 50s and people were like, well, obviously we'll be running our cars on, you know, nuclear energy in 20 years. We'll have an atomic generator in, in, in the garage and so on. So I, I, think, I think, yes, there are obviously moments in the modern world where we take our technological achievements too much for granted and air travel is a miracle, and looking out over the clouds when you're flying high above them is something that we should never take for granted. But at the same time, there really has been a deceleration relative to what reasonable people expected a few generations back. And if you had gone back to 1960 and said, you know, you, the only thing from Star Trek you'll have is the communicator, <laughs> like people would have been a little disappointed. And then they'd say, oh, but you'd have an encyclopedia on your communicator. And then you show them Tinder, right? And they and is that is that progress? It's not it's not entirely clear. So of course, your book deals not only with technological stalling, but also a sense of cultural repetitiveness. And you've been a, a film critic, I think, for decades now, many, uh, many years, 14, years, 14 yeah. years. In what ways are our storytellers failing us? So it's easiest to see it in the movies. And my view may be skewed a little bit by the fact that I consume more movies than I do other forms of pop culture. But the movies are still big. They're a huge part of the entertainment landscape. And what's happened over the last 15 years is for both economic and cultural reasons, Hollywood has come to rely more and more on not just blockbuster movies, but what, what's called pre-sold IP, IP meaning intellectual property, right? So stories that have huge name recognition even before they come out are connected to extended universes, are sequels and reboots and so on. And so it used to be that, you know, if you look at the top 10 movies from 1998 or 1987, 
you know, these are blockbusters. They're not like art house movies, but seven of them would be original stories. And then you'd have a Beverly Hills Cop 2 or a Lethal Weapon 3, right? Today, it's flipped. You look at the top 10 movies in any given year and eight of them will be, nine of them will be, you know, four Marvel movies, two Star Wars movies, a Harry Potter movie, and, you know, a couple others, and then maybe an arrival or, you know, one or two original stories. And that's a big change. And... And it reflects, again, economic incentives. These blockbuster movies make a lot of money and play well overseas. They're sort of built for the widest possible audience. But I also think it reflects a, a certain kind of cultural exhaustion and repetition, a sense in which our imaginations are sort of held prisoner by the baby boomers in certain ways. Like all of our biggest stories except arguably Harry Potter – come from basically 1930 to 1975, right? From like the golden age of comic books, plus I guess Star Wars gets you to the late 70s, early 80s, plus Star Wars, Star Trek, and so on. And yeah, we're sort of struggling to invent, I think, new, or sort of invent or reinvent our our cultural mythologies. And then we're also, I think, in the mythologies, we do have sort of retreating a bit in narrative richness and storytelling. I mean, this, you know, I like the Marvel movies, right? I enjoy them. But they have something in common with the kind of young adult fiction that has taken over bookstores, right, since I was a kid. When I was a kid, young adult fiction meant like, you know, that novel Hatchet about the boy who's, you know, who's lost in the wilderness and a couple other things. But there wasn't some huge, you know, YA marketplace. And YA fiction is, it's huge, Adults read it, just like adults go to see Marvel movies in large numbers, and it's sort of perpetually stuck at age 14, right, where, you know, the origin story is so powerful. You're just coming into your powers, which is how adolescents feel, and you're confused by them, and you have enemies to fight. But, you know, if you watch a superhero movie, there's no adult romances, in superhero movies. I mean, I know there's, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp, he's in love with the scientist's daughter. I mean, there, you know, there are, there are exceptions, but there's no adult sexuality in those movies. And Which is ironic if the boomers have basically the, the industry in a... In well, a... but the boomers... So, right, but this is part of, part of what's happened, too, is that the boomers, you know, sort of... The boomers and also their parents, to some extent, right, launched a sexual revolution... And the first phase of the sexual revolution was both, I think you would say it was both dynamic and destructive at the same time, right? It, it sort of, it, it radically reshaped sexual relations, radically reshaped marriages in ways that religious conservatives have good reasons to bemoan. But what's happened in the last 20 years is we've stabilized things. Divorce rates have gone down. Abortion rates have fallen. Out-of-wedlock births have leveled off. Teen, teen births have declined. Those are all things that cultural conservatives wanted to happen. But the way we've done it is by abolishing sex mm -hmm. itself. So it's not, that people, it's not that people are saving themselves for marriage and getting married. It's that people are less likely to get married. They're less likely to have kids. Men, young men especially, are sort of retreating into virtual worlds, into pornography, and even literally in our sexually liberated society, the rate of sexual intercourse has been going down for 15 or 20 years. And this is not just an American phenomenon. It, Japan sort of pioneered the shift, but in, you know, in liberated Scandinavia, in Finland, there's all this data on sort of, you know, declining rates of sex. And it, again, like, 
religious conservatives, it's not that they should want people to be having, well, wild orgies to go back to the beginning or, <laughs> you know, being promiscuous. But, but it seems like we sort of abandoned one vision of human flourishing, found it immensely destabilizing and have restabilized ourselves by giving up on sex and romance and marriage entirely. And again, sort of having this kind of 14-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, sort of dramatic yet somewhat sterile vision of what adult life is supposed to be like. It's a fascinating point. I want to get back to that. But I also wanted to ask you, you've written on a wide range of topics. You've had a book on heresy and bad religion, (laughs) on privilege, on the future of the Republican Party, on Pope Francis. What sort of sparked your interest in in writing this book? Uh, I mean, did you sense a sapping of strength or hope in other people that you talk to in yourself? One thing that I will just throw out there, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is one of the things that struck me about this book was a yearning for wonder. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think it – so there are a couple ways to look at it. One is that I've been writing versions of this book my whole career, right? So I wrote a book about Ivy League institutions, and then I wrote a book about the Republican Party, and then I wrote a book about American Christianity, and then I wrote a book about the Catholic Church, and they were all – I think I didn't use the word decadence, but they were all visions of institutions that seemed to have, you know, run into trouble, basically, and entered a kind, you know, were stuck in various stalemates or were becoming sclerotic, needed to reform. And so this, in certain ways, is the macro level take. It's saying, okay, well, if all our institutions have this issue, if it's a problem with secular Ivy League universities and traditional Roman Catholicism, then maybe it's a... It's not, you know, maybe we need to zoom out a little bit and look at the culture as a whole. So that's one piece of it. Another piece is that I felt like I was trying to reconcile two very different readings on the present moment. One reading being this sort of anxious, catastrophizing view of things where everything seems to be getting worse all the time and you know whether it's if you're a conservative it's you know it's secularization and the decline of religion if you're a liberal it's trump and climate change but you know this feeling of sort of crisis joined to the counterpoint that you get from writers like steven pinker right that says well what are you guys talking about things have never been better life expectancy has never been longer we've never been richer you're just making up problems And in this book, I'm basically saying that they're both capturing some of the truth. Pinker is right that we're not probably, pending the coronavirus, about to collapse as a civilization. And there are certain ways in which things have never been better. But critics of our society on the left as well as the right are capturing, you know, a real sense of uncertainty, ennui, and despair even about where we go from here and what do we do with all of this wealth. And you know, our wealth is not increasing at the rate it was 40 years ago. And if we're sort of stagnant and stuck, what does that mean? So that's part of what decadence is trying to sort of crystallize the a world in which both of those feelings can be valid. But then finally, to your point, I mean, one interesting thing is, again, I am a cultural conservative and my brief at the New York Times is sort of to be, you know, critical of critical of secular liberalism and so on. But one thing that's interesting to me as I get older is, you know, we're supposed to be against the 60s. 
right as cultural conservatives. There's one thing we're against. It's the, it's or maybe the 70s. 60s were okay for a while. 70s were against bell bottoms and you know key parties and all of that. So many sins. And I and and yeah, so many sins. And there there are more moments now than when I was a guess a younger a younger Catholic where I'm a little bit envious of the 60s and 70s where you feel like, yes, it was a period of, you know, wanton immorality and sort of people wrecking institutions at times that shouldn't have been wrecked. But it also was a period of optimism, shading into utopianism, dynamism, youth, and the kind of energy that put put a man, put a human being on the moon. And our own era, it's not clear to me that a world of, you know, sort of pornography and political gridlock is necessarily better from a Christian perspective than the summer of love. I mean, it's better than the Manson murders. But, you know, even when you, even with the Manson murders, I watched Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right, which is sort of his fantasy of 1969. It's not about the moon landing, but it's set in the same year. And that movie is, you know, it's steeped in a kind of nostalgia for a younger and more dynamic and, you know, in certain ways more chaotic and dangerous, in other ways more carefree United States. And so I'm, again, in this book, for readers who are conservative, I'm trying to maybe explain why we've sort of in certain ways escaped some of the problems that the 60s caused, but it's not clear that we've gotten to a fully better place. And there were things that, you know, existed in 1969 that maybe even in their sinfulness are better. You know, the sort of the the bold and ambitious sinner might be closer to God in certain ways than the sort of numbed, you know, the inhabitants of Huxley's Brave New World or something. The guy, you know, taking taking drugs, using pornography and sort of cut off from healthy human relationships, yeah, might be might be further from God than, you know, the hippie rolling in the mud at Woodstock. There is a sense, you know, in reading it, I thought, huh, in some ways we are kind of seeing the reverse of Karl Marx's idea that religion is the opiate of the people. Here our very vices are their own opiate. Yes. I know. I think that's absolutely right. I think Marx was wrong, not about everything, but about that, mm-hmm. and that you know, the opiate of the masses right now is opioids, right? And religion's, religion's retreat does not liberate people to become more revolutionary or more ambitious. In fact, I think there's a, a dialectic, if you will, between religious, political, and scientific ambition, where the same kind of cultural impulses that make people believe that they can you know, reform society in various ways that makes them believe they can achieve great innovations, also makes them believe that, you know, there are divine secrets that are could be discovered or can be imparted. And what all of those ideas have in common is the idea that the universe is in some sense, even in our fallen world, made for man. And our minds and our efforts are sort of matched to the challenges we have, whether they're scientific, political, or moral and religious. And I think that's what we've lost in our own era, and that's where sort of the culture of virtual entertainments and, you know, opioids, pot, and antidepressants comes from, that, you know, actually actually the universe isn't made for us, and we've done all we can do, 
on this planet, and all that's left is sort of to try and attain certain kinds of certain kinds of fleeting and transitory pleasures while we're here. Yeah, I, I think I think there's something. It's not provable, but I think there's something to that argument. In some ways, your inter- interpretation seems to put you a little bit at odds with other cultural conservatives that, that we could name, uh, among whom there seems to be uh, almost an eager apocalypticism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all going to hell. We need to head for the hills, or conversely, we need to seize power. And you seem to be arguing something quite the opposite, you know, that we're not running pell-mell towards hell. We are slouching towards limbo. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Or maybe the eighth circle rather than the first (laughs) circle, right? Are there reactions or are there arguments, reactions against decadence or just a misunderstanding of our current condition? So this is an argument that I have had listeners can go online and and read me going back and forth with my friend Rod Dreher about this on the American Conservative website because and Rod and I in certain ways have very similar cultural analysis but as you say Rod like many people is much more apocalyptic than I am and much more likely to argue that we're in a period where you know institutional religion is dissolving and the culture is transforming rapidly and power is being concentrated in the hands of our enemies And I definitely see a lot more recurrence. And I think if you go back to the 1970s and sort of pick a moment, 1976 or something, and you would say, well, look at the trends in 1976. They suggest that soon organized religion will evaporate and, you know, we've just had Roe v. Wade and abortion rates have soared and we're obviously going to become this totally, totally hedonistic pagan post-Christian society. And instead, you had a reaction to that and a sort of consolidation of religious conservatism and a swing to the right that, you know, won some victories and then started losing battles again. And now we've swung back and are in a similar moment of seeming religious conservative defeat. And I mean, I'm not denying that, you know, this sort of cycling can eventually take you somewhere that, you know, each with each cycle, maybe Christianity gets a little weaker, organized religion gets a little weaker. Maybe this wave of sort of the occult, new age, spirituality, Wiccanism, astrology, maybe it's taking us further in a post-Christian direction than the last wave in the 70s. But I think it's also useful to look at those recurrences and say, well, that probably means that the, you know, the trajectory of society in 2010 is not going to go just in a linear direction straight to, you know, the persecution of of Christians or something. That in fact, there will probably be another cycle and another cycle after that. And you need to see that as part of the story, that you aren't just sort of trying to resist a tide. You're also trying to break out of a cycle. And like in, you know, set aside secularism and liberalism, just look sort of internally to Christianity, right? The debates that were had within both Catholicism and Protestantism after the sexual revolution, you know, debates about sex explicitly and how churches should adapt, and then larger debates about the authority of scripture, you know, sort of a range of issues around that. Those debates look pretty similar today Mm -hmm. to the way they looked in the 70s. Yes, same-sex marriage wasn't really on the radar screen, and now it's a very divisive issue. It's sort of taken the place of divorce as as a sort of crucial a crucial dividing line. But in general, 
you know, the debate, like, like a journey like Rob Bell, right, the evangelical pastor who first decides that he doesn't believe in hell and then decides that he doesn't believe in some other things and becomes more of a sort of general spiritual guru. That's, and gets a slot on and, Oprah. And gets a slot on Oprah. That's a very familiar story. This is not novel to the tw- early 21st century. There were plenty of versions of that. You can go back to James Pike, right, the Episcopal bishop in the 60s who has a similar, a similar journey and becomes a famous public figure. So I, I don't, you know, or in Catholicism, Pope Francis, I wrote a whole book about this, comes in after a period of conservative popes and reopens a bunch of debates. And instead of transcending the Vatican II culture wars, you're dropped right back into the arguments of 1975. It's like Paul VI, this pope again. And even Francis, you know, I I thought that he would actually liberalize the church more. But instead, after making a couple moves, there's been this return of stalemate where actually we're not going to probably open up the ordination of married men. We're not going to have female deacons. And the, the sort of, quote unquote, left and right in the church just get back into the same stalemate. Was so that I, a disappointment? I mean, no, I was in favor. I mean, as a, as a conservative, I, I prefer the stalemate to, to certain forms of revolution that could happen. And, there, you know, there are worse things than, than decadence. And in this sense, I prefer the general cycle. I'd rather be cycling than be where Rod thinks we are. But I think in thinking about how you respond, it is useful to think of like, well, is my resistance just itself part of this pattern of recurrence? And am I looking, therefore, for a a mode of Christian witness that is somehow, that somehow breaks the cycle of liberal versus... Right, yeah, the glitch in... What's exactly, what's the glitch in the matrix that shows the way out. And maybe that's the way to real evangelization at some point. Well, speaking of that, uh, one of the things you wrote that I thought was fascinating, you said, um, I'll quote you here, I suspect that a truly globalized civilization cannot help tending towards decadence so long as it remains earthbound. So long as there is no hope of finding new actual worlds to leap towards, conquer, or explore. This struck me as potentially discounting the possibility of creating new art and beauty as an antidote to decadence and confining the antidote almost entirely to the conquest of new Mm. physical frontiers. Might be a very male perspective. That was the other thing that struck me as I wasn't going to go there. No, it's totally totally fair. mm -hmm. Although I do, I mean, the book does talk about, you know, the idea of new art forms and religious revival. It talks, you know, a lot about renewed fertility and a new emphasis on the family. So I'm not I'm not putting all of my aches, as it were, as it were. <laughs> into the basket <laughs> of space exploration. But but yeah, I mean this is my most sort of presumptuous in certain ways theological historical opinion that you know, the Christian story, the Jewish story, too, starts with an admonition from God to fill the earth and subdue it. And it is a distinctive feature of the last hundred years of human history that for the first time we can claim to have sort of done that. We've mapped the world. We've gone to the poles. We've explored pretty much everywhere except a few trenches in the ocean that human beings can reasonably explore. And that doesn't mean we're going to now go into space, but it does mean that it's a peculiar moment in human history, and it's a little bit like the moment 
that the Roman Empire embodied, right? Where you have a world, I mean, they weren't a real world empire, but for the purposes of the world as they knew it, they were the first world empire. And so the last time we reached this kind of moment, God sent his own son to redeem the world. So there is part of me that looks at our position and says, well, unless you believe that we're just doomed to sort of putter along until we get hit by an asteroid and have to build civilization all over again, which is possible, then, you know, this it does seem like a moment when either some new frontier needs to be open to us or something something else has to come down from on high, which again doesn't preclude the responsibility to make great art and achieve political reform and have babies and make the world a better place here on earth. But I do think people maybe underestimate slightly the world historical distinctiveness of having a sort of a world civilization given what the Christian narrative sort of suggests about the unfolding of human history. Well, in fact, you conclude your book, uh, <laughs> this last paragraph, I, I think it's it's fascinating, so I'm going to read it as well. By all uh, means. You say, I am just saying that if this were the age in which some major divine intervention happened, whether long prophesied or completely unseen, there would be, in hindsight, a case that we should have seen it coming. And it shouldn't surprise anyone if decadence ends with people looking heavenward, towards God, towards the stars, or both. So down on your knees and start working on that warp drive. Yeah, well, you know, you got to end a book with a little bit of a little bit of kick. The funny thing is, in one of one of the reviews by the sort of critic of decadence and billionaire Peter Thiel, which was generally a very kind review. He complained about the last line and said, look, part of the problem, part, one of the reasons we have decadence is that we have a very indefinite idea of what the future should be. We're like, well, we should go to space generally. And that the way you get out of decadence is by setting, having a specific technical problem that you can solve, like going to the moon or even going to Mars and saying, let's solve that. And as he said, the warp drive technology is pretty unattainable right now. That's a good line. Yes, but still, right, my defense is that it's a good line. <laughs> so. Where do you find the most hope? Well, in part, in what we were just talking about, in the mm -hmm. fact that I, I do think that history is a story with sort of acts and scenes and arcs and narratives, even if mm -hmm. we can't discern the whole of it. And sometimes we can discern it, as I suggested, in hindsight, a little better than in the moment. So I don't think that we are actually doomed to just sort of sit around growing old in decadence forever and ever waiting for the meteor to hit. Mm -hmm. I think I, the, part of the argument in the book is that this could last a bit longer than people think. But as, yeah, as, a, as a Christian who thinks there's a story here, I don't expect it to last forever. I expect something unexpected to come along. So that's the, that's the sort of big mm -hmm. picture. You know, then in the everyday, I mean, one, you know, I try and make this point in the book, but even under decadence, decadence is not dystopia, not fully, not completely. And as long as it's not, it's still completely possible to make a great TV show or write a great novel or, I mean, you, I think you have to turn off your phone to accomplish this, but to write a great poem, right? Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of places in our society that could be seedbeds of cultural renewal or maybe already are and I'm too focused on the Marvel movies to see them. So 
you know, there's and you know, I travel around the country promoting books and going to colleges and universities and you often meet people and sort of encounter communities in that life that seem like you know, maybe they aren't transforming the whole country yet, but they have that transformative potential. So, and even, you know, and and joined to that is there is clearly a discontent with decadence, right? Like the the appeal of a Donald Trump or a Bernie Sanders in politics, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Trump administration. I don't think I'd be a huge fan of a Bernie Sanders administration, but I I think it's a good sign for society that people on the right and left are saying, you know, well, political establishment has failed us and we want to try something new. I think that's a positive impulse. So that's another source of hope. And then finally, you know, I have three kids. We're about to have a fourth. I'm not going to tell you that it's, you know, a cosmic joy every single day. It's, uh, you know, but it, it does keep you grounded. I mean, I'm, my everyday life does not feel decadent, mostly because I have kids. And maybe when they get older and my wife and I go on Viking River cruises and, you know, hang out and I finally buy an Oculus Rift headset and disappear into virtual reality, then I'll be really decadent. But as long as you have children under the age of 18 and have friends who have children under the age of 18 and go to a church with a lot of kids under the age of 18, decadence's power cannot be complete because children, children are not decadent. And taking care of them may not be dynamic, but it's it is it is certainly it, there's nothing virtual about it. It is extremely extremely real. As a Christian, as a conservative, as a believer in the narrative arc of history, it does seem like one of the recurring uh, catalysts for Renaissance and renewal has been religious revival. Yes. Do you think it's possible to have the kind of renewal, escape uh, from decadence that you are that you hope for without a religious revival? Probably not completely. No. I mean, I think I guess what I would say is I can imagine a catalyst that wasn't itself religious, right? Like I could imagine a technological catalyst coming along, and it could be a dark one, like what we were talking about. You could have some sort of transhumanist development that in turn catalyzed resistance or challenge or critique, right? That in turn fed into a kind of religious revival. So I don't think it, I don't think it has to start per se, in spite of my second coming speculations, with a prophet, a revivalist, a new movement, you know, a Luther, an Ignatius. It could be I mean, you know, if you think of sort of the Renaissance and Reformation era, the catalysts are Gutenberg and Columbus, right? And, you know, Columbus had some religious motivations. Gutenberg starts out, you know, prints Bibles. It's not that there was no religious element, but they weren't, their missions weren't primarily religious. But in catalyzing the age of discovery and the age of mass literacy and all of these things, they then spurred Reformation, counter-reformation, you know, I mean, they spurred bad, bad things too, right? War, I mean, again, decadence, dec leaving decadence doesn't guarantee happiness. You can get the wars of religion and, and persecution and everything else. But so much of what we think of as, you know, the, the religious heroes and saints who made the various, however unhappily divided Christian confessions of the modern world come out of the shifts that happened because of explorers, scientists, printing presses, and so on. 
So I think the escape from decadence is probably a dynamic thing where technology, politics, and religion are all sort of operating together. But it's hard to imagine it happening without a really strong religious element within it. As we wrap up, we always end with what we call five fast favorites. I'll throw out five categories, and you can tell me your favorite in <laughs> no, each category. No, I'm terrible at these games. Oh, well, this but one you go. should know right off the top of your head. Favorite movie. That's, that's hard. I mean, the truth is it's a wonderful life. Oh, excellent choice. Um, which I will defend as a genuine masterpiece and not just a sort of a, a feel-good Christmas movie. But, yeah, I have I have others, but that's that's the quick answer. Favorite writer? Who is my favorite writer? What's odd is that when you're my age, the writers I'm reading are all children's book authors. So in my mind, I mean, I'm, I'm reading political journalism and I read genre fiction. So I'm going to cheat and say the best reading experience I've had recently is reading Richard Adams' Watership Down to my children which I wrote a column about this sort of making the case for Watership Down as a kind of anti-decadence book oh, about, about just, rabbits. I'll have to check that out. Have you never read it? I've never read oh, it. Oh, it's terrific. It's really, I mean, I'm not sure it's my favorite novel, but it's certainly one of my five to ten favorite novels. And it, it's, it bridges, I read it to a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I thought it might be too old for them, and it wasn't. But neither is it at all sort of for children in some sort of narrow sense. It's a novel about politics. And rabbits. And rabbits. Excellent. Favorite work of art? Genuinely the cover of The Great Gatsby. Oh, interesting. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying for certain. But if you ask me— The one me, with the big eye? The one with the big eye. If you ask me, like, if I, ha I don't have a study, I do all my work in coffee shops. But I was trying to think of— you know, what if I could own a picture, an original to put on the wall. And, you know, I like, I'm not, I'm not a big sort of, uh, you know, I, I've been insufficiently educated in high art. If I were picking an old master, I would probably want a Caravaggio. But if you actually asked me to choose, I would take, I would take that, the cover of the original Great Gatsby. T.J. Eccleston? Yeah, the yes, eyes of yes. T.J. Eccleston, I think, okay. yeah. And favorite flight of fancy meaning what do you daydream about? I'll give two answers. One, one, I do read a lot of fantasy fiction. I read a lot of it as a teenager. I sort of stopped for a long time, and now I've come back to it as I enter middle age. So I sort of daydream fantasy novels to some extent. And then I have an incredibly strong attachment to summer vacations on the coast of Maine, where my mother's family is from. So on long winter days, if I'm thinking about something that is sort of escapist, it's most likely walking on a particular beach on the Maine coast. Excellent. Ross, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.